You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash crimes, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash crimes to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash crimes. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise in Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and let's start today by covering a case suggestion by one of you fantastic listeners. And I'm glad you sent this in because this case was out of South Carolina and it wasn't on my radar. And now two people have been sentenced to decades in prison for the murder of 13-year-old Christina Pangalangan. Okay, we've got to skip back to August of 2019 to get to the day of Christina's murder. That seems like an eternity ago, right? I mean, it's pre-COVID. So many things have changed since then. But what hasn't changed is people putting their wants and needs before others. And Christina's mom did just that. Okay, on that hot summer day, 49-year-old Rita Pengelangen and her boyfriend, Larry King. Okay, yeah, not the famous Larry King, just someone who shares his name. Okay, they seem to want some alone time. And alone time was difficult to come by because 13-year-old Christina is special needs. Christina has cerebral palsy, and her diagnosis was so severe that she could not speak, and she was confined to a wheelchair. Okay, if you guys are listening to this podcast, that's awesome, but I want you to take a moment to check out the pictures of Christina, either on the YouTube channel or on the Instagram page. And I want you to do that because she's an angel, 
Her sweetness radiates even through photographs, but she has special needs, which means her care is special care. And that must have just been too much for Rita on that hot August day. Okay, in the morning hours of that hot August day, Larry buckled the sweet Christina into the back seat of the Volkswagen Jetta parked outside of his home. And then the two leave her in there. See, the two were having what appears on the security camera footage to be having sort of a little tiff with each other. Okay, Larry said he had told Rita to leave because she had been cheating on him and he was frustrated. And apparently that's why he buckled Christina into the car to make Rita leave, but Rita did not leave. They just simply ignore Christina, who cannot walk or talk, and they leave her locked in the car while Rita and Larry swing on the porch swing. And at first they're just talking. And eventually the tiff softens and the two begin hugging and kissing. And then after about an hour of this, Rita walks to the car. She is going there to check on Christina, but she finds the car's locked. So she only just looks inside through the window and then she walks away and into the house. Now the two left Christina in the car for the next three hours while they used drugs and had sex in Larry's house. And yeah, three hours during the hottest part of the day. Okay, finally at 3 p.m., the two emerge from the home and they check on Christina. Now the doors to the Jetta, they're still locked, But instead of breaking a window to the Volkswagen, the two just leave the property for another hour. They then return with another set of keys and they open the car that Christina has been literally baking in. Okay, at this point, Christina is dead. And Larry pulls her from the car and lays her in the tall grass before calling 911. When first responders arrived, they confirmed that Christina had died from her time in the hot car. Her body temperature was recorded at 110 degrees, and the car was believed to be 135 degrees inside. Now, first responders also confirmed that upon arrival on the scene, Larry was still on the phone with 911, and Rita was inside Larry's home. Now, the two were charged with murder and jailed in Colton County. Both made bond, and they've just been living their lives up until the trial last week. Okay, remember how I said there was life before COVID and then there's life after COVID? Well, life after COVID means you wait four years before facing trial for the crimes you're being accused of. So while playing that waiting game, Rita's other adult daughter, Ashley, well, she never wavered in her support for her mother. In fact, she told reporters after Rita's bond hearing in 2019 that she wasn't mad at her mother. She said that losing Christina was punishment enough and that her mother having to live with that loss was enough. She also said that if anyone deserved to go to heaven, it was Christina. Okay, look, you guys, I'm religious. I believe Christina is in a glorious heaven where her body has been made whole, but I don't believe I get to decide when it is Christina's time to leave this life and move on to the next. And I don't think that was Larry and Rita's decision either. Now, when the two-faced trial last week, prosecutors did not hold back on their condemnation for the pair. Solicitor Duffy Stone told the court that the two deliberately left Christina in the car like baggage, and they called investigators, which testified that both Rita and Larry had meth in their system upon arrest. 
The state also played the entire four-hour and 41-minute security footage captured by Larry's cameras attached to his home. Now, the footage shows the canoodling, the activity around the car, the complete disregard when they left after three and a half hours to fetch another set of car keys. And Solicitor Stone asked the jury if Christina even crossed the minds of Larry and Rita on that day. He said the two were only interested in each other. They were interested in kissing and hugging and spending time with each other and having sex. He then challenged the jury to identify a single time in the four hours and 41 minutes where Larry and Rita demonstrated any regard for Christina's life. But the defense countered by arguing that the entire situation was just a tragic accident. Larry actually took the stand and he told the jury that the car was running when he put Christina in the back seat. And his lawyer argued that that one specific act let Larry off the hook. He didn't have responsibility after that point, according to his lawyer. Okay, as far as Reed is concerned, she chose not to testify as part of her defense. However, her lawyer, Dane Phillips, acknowledged that they had absolutely left Christina in the car, but he said that didn't lead to murder. He told the jurors they needed to separate their emotions from the case. He said the truth was that a horrible accident had occurred. Now, it took the jury just over two hours to find both of them guilty of murder. Here, I'll let you listen as the verdict is read to Rita, and then you'll hear her reaction. We, the jury, in the above caption, on the charge of murder of Christina and Pamela, find the defendant guilty. Oh, my God. We, the jury, in the above captured case on the charge of great bodily injury of a child, we find the defendant guilty. Oh, Okay, now after the verdict is read, and as Rita is rocking back and forth in her courtroom chair, she is mouthing the words, I'm sorry, to her family that is seated in the gallery. And when Larry's verdict is read, He just stands there emotionless. Well, the next day, Circuit Judge Clifton Newman sentenced Rita to 37 years in prison. He then sentenced Larry to 32 years in prison. He told the two that this case was not traditional murder. He said it's not the pull out a gun and shoot someone in the head kind of murder. But he said the conduct of the two was so extremely reckless that it constituted a willful disregard for human life that it absolutely constituted murder. He then told the two that as bad as Larry's conduct was that day, that Rita's was worse. He also said if it had not been for drugs, neither of them would most likely be in that courtroom. And it does seem that Rita had been spiraling for a few years. Just nine years ago, Rita had been named the 2014 Teacher of the Year at Walter Burroughs Black Street Early Education Center. But... Immediately following her arrest in 2019, the South Carolina State Board of Education suspended her educator license. In filing her suspension, the board said that despite her more than 25 years of experience as an educator, the arrest showed that Ms. Pengalangan may pose a threat to the health, safety, and welfare of students. Well, Law and Crime reported that loved ones of Christina said they felt the South Carolina Department of Social Services did not appropriately handle five previous complaints against Rita. Okay, the most recent claim happened six months before the death when 
Christina showed up to school with a severe, untreated burn across her face, neck, and chest. Now, the claim states that Rita had failed to take care of the wound, which ended up draining fluid onto Christina's shirt. And the claim also said a foul odor was coming from the wound. It appears Christina's biological father has filed suit against the department, claiming the agency failed to properly follow through with Christina's case. But her two daughters continue to stand by Rita. During testimony at the trial, Elizabeth, so that's another one of Rita's adult daughters, said that her mom was a good mom. She said her mother got a walker for Christina, even though insurance wouldn't pay for it. She said her mom had to work extra hours as a tutor to come up with that money. She also said her mother always made sure Christina had what she needed. She said her mother would say that God created her to be Christina's mother because she was tough enough to handle it. Okay, now after watching the courtroom footage, one thing was for sure. This was a very sorrowful courtroom. During breaks, both Larry and Rita would engage in conversation with their respective families. And at one point, Rita cried while embracing her daughter. And even the members of the gallery would spend time consoling each other. All right, let's end this tragic story by remembering the angelic Christina who could feel and express emotions. She loved to watch cartoons and she loved spending time in the swimming pool. It's these stories where I really hope that God rescued her sweet soul before she felt the pain that was inflicted by these neglectful people. All right, now to the University of Idaho quadruple homicide. Okay, to be honest, I feel like I could bring you guys an update to this case pretty much every week, but I haven't been doing that. I was waiting for certain things to happen so we could kind of collate it all together. So let's do a quick check-in now to see what has been happening for the last few weeks. Okay, remember, this is the brutal stabbings of the four innocent college students, Kayla Gonsalves, Maddie Mogan, Ethan Chapin, and Zana Kernodal. Now the murders occurred in November of 2022, and Brian Koberger, he's a PhD student at a neighboring college. Well, he was arrested a month and a half later in Pennsylvania at his parents' home for all four murders. Now, investigators had used DNA gathered at the scene of the crime on a knife sheath that was found near near the girls' bodies, and they compared that DNA to DNA that was recovered at Koberger's parents' home. Now, we have had some scuttlebutt surrounding the collection and testing of this DNA. Okay, mostly it's the defense. They've been contending that the DNA was not properly tested, and the evidence presented to the grand jury was flawed. Okay, well, several motions led to a hearing on August 18th that dealt with the collection of the DNA and the methods used to test it. Okay, during that hearing, Gabriella Vargas, who was deemed an expert on genetic genealogy, testified about the linking of the DNA to Koberger. Okay, well, just days after that testimony, two FBI agents visited Vargas at her home. Koberger's defense attorney, Ann Taylor, contends that those FBI agents interrogated her, or interrogated Vargas, about her testimony and her findings. Now, Attorney Taylor... She has filed a motion saying the interrogation impacts Brian Koberger's due process rights. Okay, so what now? Well, Latah County Prosecutor Bill Thompson said the state flagged the FBI to investigate Vargas. So it came from his office. That whole interrogation started from his office. And Thompson 
also filed an explanation for the FBI interrogation, but that was a secret filing, so we don't know what's in it. However, some details have come out in the various court hearings over the last two weeks. Okay, Prosecutor Thompson has said that some of Vargas' colleagues have told people that she's going to change her testimony. And Thompson said that she told the FBI that some of what was in her declaration for the court was false and that she had inadvertently agreed to or signed off on that declaration without fully reading it. Okay, her expert testimony, well, it also had other controversy when the prosecutors asked the court for permission to delay cross-examination of Vargas to a later date because they had some kind of a snafu over some PowerPoint slides. So they don't take the time to cross-examine her in the hearing, but they will interrogate her in private just a few days later. I mean, I can kind of see why Ann Taylor is frustrated with that. Now, Law and Crime interviewed former FBI agent Tracy Walder, and she said in that interview that this kind of FBI interrogation that was held with Vargas, it's really not that typical. She believes that if an interview like this was going to be held, it would have been appropriate for a member of both legal teams to be present. She also said that most agents in the FBI, well, they don't record their interviews or wear body cameras. So the potential for actual footage of the interaction between Vargas and the agents, well, it's just unlikely that that exists. Now, is the follow-up with Vargas by investigators out of bounds? Actually, it's not. They can do this kind of, I guess you want to call it interrogation, with witnesses. But it does seem that more legitimate circumstances could have been implemented during the interview. Okay, mostly Vargas. She was testifying to the idea that on a DNA website, kind of like 23andMe, think of a DNA website like that, that a person with their profile can opt in or opt out of policies that affect how law enforcement can obtain information from their profiles. So when a person opts out of the policy, law enforcement really shouldn't be able to view that person's profile. But Vargas testified that some law enforcement can use a workaround on some of these websites and they can see the information anyway. She said even though law enforcement might believe they're doing the right thing by using the workaround, that actually might violate the policies of the website. Now, the judge will have to weigh out this potential conflict and offer a ruling later on. And later on is actually the key here. The date is most likely September 22nd, but we have a new wrinkle in the case. Koberger was supposed to be going to trial on October 2nd. Well, a few weeks ago, he waived his right to a speedy trial. So now we're going to wait. And the motions get ruled on at a slower pace. As of this recording, the death penalty is still on the table for Koberger. And also, as of this recording, Judge Judge, hey, remember, that's his name. Judge Judge has yet to make a final decision on cameras and the media gag order. Okay, this decision is supposed to be handled in another hearing scheduled for September 13th. So those are your two dates, the 13th and the 22nd that we're looking forward to. Okay, and another up-in-the-air decision where will the trial be held? Okay, Judge Judge has yet to determine if the trial will be moved out of Moscow, Idaho. Okay, most believe it will, because the idea that the small population and high notoriety of the case make for a recipe where an impartial jury cannot be seated. Okay, also slated for that September 22nd hearing, 
there's more motions concerning the grand jury and the DNA evidence. So the defense is contending that the state has not provided all of the DNA evidence and gathering techniques. Now the state, well, they're saying exactly the opposite. And the state is also saying that the claims about hidden evidence, well, that they're just speculation by the defense. Okay, one thing's for sure, they're keeping these courtrooms busy in northern Idaho. Okay, the last thing involving this case. So what's happening with the house where the four were murdered? Well, that house was supposed to be demolished a few weeks ago, but it hasn't been. The owner of the home donated the house to the University of Idaho following the murders. And the U of I said they got permission from both the defense and the state to demolish the home. However, Kaylee Gonsalves' family has requested the home remain standing until after the trial, just in case it will be needed for evidence. And the U of I, well, they agreed to the family's request and the home will remain standing. So as of now, the university has spent $98,000 in security for the home, as well as removal of personal items and remediation of hazardous substances within the home. Okay, I'll try to keep popping in here with updates every now and again on the motions and the hearings and the new developments in the case. And as far as when we'll actually see a trial in a courtroom, well, my guess is we're gonna have to wait a while. All right, finally today, a quick update to Monday's story of Danilo Calvacante. Kate, first, a big thank you to my Latin America listeners who said his name is most likely pronounced Danilo instead of Danello, like I was saying, and like mainstream media is saying. So us in America, we're just trying to get it right. So I'm going to pronounce his name Danilo from this time forward. Kate, remember, this is the brutal murderer who savagely stabbed his girlfriend over 30 times in front of her two young children. He was worried she would share information with authorities about his involvement in a 2017 murder. Well, he was convicted and sentenced to life for the murder of his ex-girlfriend, Deborah. And he was just one month into his sentence when he escaped from a Pennsylvania prison a week ago. Okay, since his escape, he has been suspected to be involved in at least two home robberies. He has also been spotted on multiple security cameras as he travels around during the night. Well, law enforcement had set up a perimeter, but during a Tuesday morning news conference, Pennsylvania State Police released two still images taken from trail cameras on Monday night. And in those images, he's in Longwood Gardens. And that's outside of the established perimeter. So police are now extending their search to include Route 1 in Pennsylvania. Danilo does appear to still have the backpack on in the still images. And that backpack, it also appears to be, you know, full, like he's carrying stuff with him. And it appears Danilo mostly stole food like snap peas and other produce in those suspected robberies. Okay, Danilo has been able to avoid capture even though law enforcement have used drones, helicopters, and search dogs, as well as hundreds of officers in the search. And law enforcement has remained tight-lipped about how Danilo escaped from prison. But some sources say he climbed onto the roof, then jumped out of the fenced prison perimeter. Chester County District Attorney Deb Ryan reiterated to the public to lock their doors and to remain inside. She also asked that homeowners review their security camera footage. A $10,000 reward is being offered for information leading to his capture. And Ryan also said Danilo is a dangerous man and should not be approached. 
She requested anyone who sees him to simply call 911. All right, that's your Thursday episode of Rise in Crime. Of course, you can follow us on Instagram and TikTok, and please subscribe to the YouTube channel. I love your case suggestions. Like today, I used one of them. I love to hear from the different areas that my listeners come from. Join me again on Monday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules, and keep safe out there.